You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Back inside the Musicians Guild. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening. You know, one of my favorite accounts on any social media platform is an account called Catatonic Youths. Most active on Instagram, but also has a Twitter. And this is a a page that compiles some of the most outrageous uh, music videos from both known and unknown artists, oftentimes from YouTube, but sometimes from live performances or uh, special television performances. But the common thread is that it always has to be outrageous and ridiculous and carry this sort of, I guess, this tone of, regardless of whether you're famous or not, when you take yourself too seriously, and you're taking yourself too seriously through doing something completely ridiculous, then it becomes fantastic and wonderful. And those people like myself who have a bit of darkness in our hearts and souls can have a really solid laugh at it and be entertained endlessly. You know, at first I definitely had a lot of guilt wondering if this was sort of like passive bullying of, you know, people who are trying to do their own thing and make their art and make their music just like I am, like we all are. But then you realize Catatonic Youths is particularly wonderful at selecting these sort of pieces of music that almost beg us to laugh at them and beg us to see how hyperbolic and ridiculous they are, whether it's taking a really dumb social or political stance or uh, doubling down on the conviction of some ridiculous lyrics with a ridiculous narrative. And then there's also one of my favorite features of Catatonic Youths, which is showcasing live performances or television online performances of very well-known artists doing certain covers of their own songs, but just sucking it up so bad, singing so out of tune, or just being so full of themselves still. Uh, One that comes to mind is (laughs) that band Puddle of Mud doing an acoustic version of a Nirvana song, and uh, it's obvious that it's out of the singer's range and 
he's straining his voice and his whole body to the point where he might have had diamonds coming out of his eyes or other orifices. But uh, it sounded so bad, it sounds great. And I ended up watching that video more than four or five times, laughing like a child. And it made me so happy. I'm old enough and I've been in the music game long enough to be completely free of any delusions of grandeur about us having a sort of hierarchical system of quality where we would hope the best become the most acknowledged and the worst don't, but that's simply not the case. You know, oftentimes the best bands and the musicians are never discovered and never make their way, and so often... Uh, luck and a collection of random events work in people's favor and you know they may have other qualities that are redeeming to the capitalist system of the music industry but uh, objectively or subjectively depending on where you lie or stand uh, oftentimes very very subpar mediocre musicians have become very popular. And I'm not against that. I understand the complexities of the world. Uh, I don't live in this sort of fairy tale of fighting what we really have, which is a system that rewards things that are most profitable, not the things that are deemed best by the forum of those who participate in that particular discipline or medium. If we did have that, any music awards would be decided by musicians themselves. It would be down to some sort of popular vote of musicians for the Grammys or for the AMAs. But it's not. It's mainly based upon a bunch of uh, industry bullshit, record sales, and, and uh, profitability, to be honest. And that's where Catatonic Youths comes in. You know, there is no sort of mean-spirited, uh, degrading manner in which catatonic youths posts videos or performances. Uh, oftentimes the caption under the video posted is merely like a section of the chorus lyrics or uh, highlighting a per particular aspect of the visuals of the video or you know, some other aspect of the song itself. And the rest is left up to the court of public opinion, or in this case, the court of musicians and music fans, to just sit back and watch and take in the level of effort and production, time and money that everyone invests into making this music that is just hilarious. And it's so instantly hilarious that it doesn't even leave any room for us to be motivated by being salty or being haters. It's just often that ridiculous. And it's through that process that it creates this interaction that is the antithesis to the major label music industry and music awards. First of all, it's giving a lot of unknown artists and bands a maximum amount of exposure. 
Granted, it's not the kind of exposure anyone would want, but for your YouTube video having seven views and then all of a sudden jumping to having 35,000 views after being posted on Catatonic Youths, you know, even if you have a lot of people ridiculing that music, you're still going to get at least a few and certainly a few more than you would have had who might secretly be like, you know, I like this. I'm down with this. I'm going to get into this. And it simultaneously gives us musicians a new context outside of the sort of corporate capitalist music industry for us to see the landscape of what we are in, what we've done, what else is out there. Uh, it puts things into a new perspective when I see a video on catatonic youths of older guys making a full music video with makeup and props and actors uh, to sing a song about promoting QAnon conspiracy theories uh, and doing it with so much passion and conviction, which I can't deny. And you can tell they care so much and they've put so much into it. And the beautiful culmination of all that effort kind of blooms into this magnificently terrible, terrible piece of music. Or at least to me, because again, I'm sure there's plenty of people that watch that stuff and are like, oh, that's really good. I really like that. And to those people I say, you do you. You like what you like. If catatonic youths is a very subtle and frankly intelligent way of showcasing the more ridiculous side of not just music, but people taking themselves too seriously, then maybe it can also, you know, for others, be a legitimate source of discovering new music that they love. Who knows? But regardless of where you stand or how you interact with catatonic use or your feelings on it, whether you love it as much as I do or you hate it, one takeaway is clear. Be able to laugh at yourself, because if you can't, other people will. And I'm pretty sure that'll hurt a lot worse than you being able to start it on your own. Take it from me, first-hand experience. I spent way too much of my life taking myself too seriously, and that came from my own insecurities. I was so insecure and not liking myself that the thought of other people seeing things that I did or things about me that were funny uh, killed me. And it killed my main enemy that lived inside of me, which was my ego. And that enemy is not gone. That enemy will never go away for any of us. But you know what? I love my ego being put in its place. And everyone else should too. If you love music and you take your love for music and your effort in music super seriously, and you take your music super seriously, that's legit. But I'm telling you, you have no navigation, you have no bearing, you have no steering without the ability to laugh at yourself and not take yourself too seriously. Taking yourself too seriously 
will lead you down the wrong path quicker than a lot of things. And I learned that lesson the hard way. That lesson is especially helpful at times like this when I'm making a podcast, putting my opinion out there, uh, wondering why anybody would even give a fuck as to what this dumbass who's lived some life and done some things would have to say. And at the same time, feeling so grateful that any one or few hundred people care. That combination of things is the true gem. And as a PSA, I'm no authority on spiritual or mental guidance or anything like that. But uh, I will say that laughing at yourself is very different than getting down on yourself and beating yourself up. The ability to kind of look at ourselves when we're being ridiculous or making something ridiculous is not the same thing as thinking that we're worthless or terrible or that everything we make is bullshit. So uh, please do not conflate those two things. One will enhance your ability to keep improving and keeping uh, your creations authentic to you which is obviously the ability to laugh at yourself and the other which is you know the area I don't want anybody to take it in which is just beating yourself up and and going down like this downward spiral of uh, negative self-talk that's very damaging and in my view a very 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 different thing uh, because I also have a degree in beating myself up and and perpetuating negative self-talk. So uh, I just wanted to make that distinction between the two. Okay, that's plenty of me on my own. Let's get to today's guest, a very fine human named Amber Carew. Amber is A&R for Saddle Creek Records. Uh, she used to work at Epitaph Anti. And I'm just going to go ahead and start off by saying that the music industry would be much better off if there were a lot more Ambers around. And there are others. But in this conversation, we get into how her growing up in New Orleans informed her sort of ethics regarding playing her role in the music business, being on the label side, and how she interacts with artists and the responsibility that she feels, and what it is exactly that she's trying to do. Amber is a very open and vulnerable, honest and sincere person, both in how she communicates what she's going through and also how she communicates her views and her motivations within the music industry and in her position of signing new artists to a very reputable and established label like Saddle Creek. Uh, It's become like a tagline of entertainment industry people in LA to claim like, yeah, I don't like the industry bullshit, or I don't do this or that, I just like real people, yada, yada, yada. Um, And quite frankly, from a lot of people saying it, it's bullshit, but Amber's the real deal. And it's very clear that she's the real deal. I also think that this conversation is really uh, useful and informative for 
anybody else trying to find their way with what to do with their music uh, and navigating the music industry itself. We talk about a lot of aspects of the music industry very bluntly and candidly. And especially coming from someone in Amber's position, uh, I think it's a really useful opinion on things. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Amber Carew. seasonal depression oh yeah what have been like last week when it was rainy what were your activities um uh, sitting in my house i couldn't even go on a walk yeah yeah is that kind of like fiddling with something or is it watching oh yeah that, that means cleaning my apartment even when it's already clean yeah not sitting for two seconds i i live in a house of my own so I can there's several there are a few different rooms I can go in <laughs> so also like you know and I don't mind talking about this but uh I'm manic and I don't sleep so I, I'm just like kind of up yeah fiddling with things and I don't really sit down for tv shows or movies yeah which is why my film knowledge and tv knowledge are uh you know um are s- so subpar to everyone else's and it's funny because it's LA so I get judged yeah. for that because everybody's like, talking about the series and they're like did you see this and that and you're like I don't watch this shit. yeah I'll try and then I'll uh stand up like 20 minutes in and just never sit back down <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that actually I think yeah. I've I did that a lot in my youth yeah and I still have a tendency to do that, but you know, it's something that we work on, you know. Yeah, stuff that's like why that. I like music and it's the only thing I really like focus heavily on because I can be engaging with that while doing anything else. That's like rad. One of the only things you can do that is that's the case, you know. Do you make cleaning playlists? Um yeah, I pretty much make playlists for everything because Every- I listen to everything. So yeah, yeah. there's really like there's a good playlist for everything. I also get asked to make a lot of playlists. For other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'll just, a lot of friends from home who don't really, it's New Orleans, so they don't really keep up sometimes. And so I'll send them a playlist of new music. But everybody, like, I just went through a breakup. Do you have some good sad music? And I'm like, yeah, I do. I work at Saddle Creek. I'll make you a playlist. Yeah. <laughs> Why is a matter of fact for that particular? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you a uh, vacuumer, a like kind of scrubber? Is it general, like evenly spread out? Oh my God, great question. I am going through something right now where um, I recently moved into this house. This is my first time living on my own. Um, no roommates. Um, at 31, here in LA, that's an accomplishment. That yes. might be late <laughs> for other people. <laughs> you know how it is. Yeah, and, um, one thing I didn't realize living on my own, um, was that I guess I've never been in a position where I had to re- buy one myself. Vacuums are really expensive. They're expensive. Oh my God. I like, I never knew this. I don't know how this knowledge evaded me for yeah. so long, but I, I bought a shitty vacuum just not knowing 
And it really does make a difference. So yes, I vacuum. I spend lots of time vacuuming. Does anything change when I do that? Not really, especially like dog hair. But why does it look so much cleaner after we've done it, even (laughs) though nothing changes? Because I'm the same way. I'm a vacuumer. It gets done at least once a day in my house. But my vacuum is so shitty that I have to vacuum for an hour. Have you ever really used a really shitty vacuum? I have like a daredevil and you just go over it back and forth (laughs) for like 30 minutes. It would drive anyone else a little wild. But for me, it's like I'm up anyway i'm an insomniac so i i got the time i think if you love cleaning and vacuuming then you may possibly owe it to yourself to get yourself like a nice dyson you know yeah my office has a dyson and sometimes i call rob and ask if i can go and bring it home and borrow it and i it's really you know i i feel a little embarrassed about that but you know rob accepts me for who i am so Oh, that's rad. I mean, if there's one you can use and you... It's right down the street. Yeah, and you uh, experience the the power of the Dyson, so who wouldn't want that? Oh, it's amazing. I'm not going to be able to afford one for a while. His has like... The one he bought for the office has like a little ball on it. It looks... It it looks like like it's from the future. Yeah. 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 And and I love it. Uh, I used to have... Me and my partner used to have a... um, what are the little round ones that that move around? Oh, Roombas? Roombas. Oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was pretty cool. It's great if you have pets. Um, well, for many reasons. It's fun to watch and it cleans. Yeah. Pets hate Roombas. But uh, yeah, I try. I want, I wanted to get one of my own. Do you realize how expensive those are? They are. They're very it's, expensive. It's it's crazy. Yeah. So I'll never have one. <laughs> I'll just be stuck with this daredevil. And then when Rob feels like letting me borrow his vacuum. Yeah. So you We're said the go. Saddle Creek office is near your house? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's near the near. So I live in Glendale. It's in Eagle Rock. We've been there for, man, I guess we moved into that spot in 2017. Um, it's across from the bowling alley. Um, All Star Lanes. Oh, it's where a, okay. I've gone to a ton of shows. Um, yeah, okay. It's still this like kind of broken down bowling alley. Like it's 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 That's cool that operating, you're right there. but yeah. it's old school. Um, I used to like go to that bar. It was like my favorite shitty bar because there were actually like I got to I just sat at the bar and could drink with like old dudes. Like it wasn't like an LA bar. <laughs> right. Like, it's inside of a bowling alley. So no one wanted yeah. to go there. But anyway, I like the block is cool. It's got um things are popping up and you know how that is like um in some ways that is unfortunate. And we did think a lot about where we wanted to move into, but Echo Park Silver Lake was not an option. I used to work uh at Anti Records where uh, they, their office is in Silver Lake and it, it kind of drove me crazy because it's so congested. Um, and so when I was looking for an office for Saddle Creek, because Rob used to just work out of a shared space before he hired me. Um, he worked inside of Secretly Canadian downtown. Um, and when he hired me, he was like, we should get our own spot. Um, and I was like, hell Yes. Um, so pretty much it was just him and I going around town looking at commercial space, which I had never done before. Really fun, kind of a nightmare, depending on what day it is, depending on the spot. Um, yeah. It was an experience. It took us a long time to find a spot, like, I don't know, six months maybe. 
uh, my my uh, perception of time is a little off, but it was a while, and we found this spot in Eagle Rock, um, and it was close to both of our places. I'm in Glendale now. He's in Atwater, so we're just a few minutes away, and we have it made. Like, you know, that's not typical of a lot of people's situation in LA. They have to commute. Yeah. I can walk to work if I wanted to. It's like a 35-minute walk, but I can. That's a major <laughs> luxury in LA. Yeah. Huge luxury. Um, yeah. Like a parking space too. Yeah. And Eagle Rock's cool. It was my first neighborhood that I lived in when I moved to LA. Um, and I loved it then, you know, like yeah. I really ended up in the right spot uh, by chance. Um, it's not like I flew out to LA to look for a place. I couldn't afford to do that. So I just came here and figured it out and ended up in Eagle Rock and, you know, moved all around. But now I'm back. And I love it. There's a couple of music people who live on the uh, or who have offices on the block, a booking agency, um, like a couple a block down or so. And there are some studios around there. Rob yeah. Schnaff Studios down the street. Um, okay. And that's easy. I hang out there a lot. So that's like a five minute drive from us. And there are lots of different kind of creative offices around there. That makes sense. Where there's a good spot, the entertainment industry will always fall. You go rock boulevard and yeah. <laughs> watch right. out. Um right. I'll be yeah. Uh that's cool. I'll hate it soon probably. But. So your title at Saddle Creek now is A and R, right? Yes. Okay. Um, that's what I got hired to do. Um that's uh was the job position that was offered to me. Um it for the first time, it was um, an A and R role, just uh, A and R on its own. Um, you yeah. know, director of A and R. Which before that, I had just been A and R slash A and R assistant slash social social media and anti. Right. There's lots of hats. I was assisting someone my whole time there, and so uh, jumping over to Saddle Creek was a big moment for me because. It's the first time I had like autonomy, true autonomy. Right. And maybe even other people working under you or with um, you? We're a small company and, um, you know, Rob, who is the owner of Saddle Creek, um, and he's he started it. He's owned uh, it since day one and, and run it. He's super hands-on and such a great boss. Um, but he... Uh, yeah. What were you asking? Oh, yeah. Uh, we're a small company and he... Uh, you know, he has this sort of philosophy that like none of us manage each other. Right. We all have autonomy and um, it, there is no hierarchy. Um, it's not set up that way. We all um, are very committed to the company and we all have our zone that we're, we're all good at, you know, um, and nobody has... Um, you know, no one's reporting to anyone. Obviously, yeah. uh, you know, we all report to Rob in some way, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels just like a family, you know, and it, it, it stayed small on purpose. You know, Rob never really wanted it to grow past that. Yeah. And I think it's grown in the way that like our the foundation has become bigger and stronger. But like on the staff side, we hire out for lots of stuff. Um, and, uh, like the core jobs that a label does, we all, um, have our zone, like I said, but, um, we, I don't know, we don't really, you know, 
we don't I don't think we want to expand past this like familial atmosphere mm-hmm. because it makes things less weird. The bigger your company gets, uh, it, at some point it has to become hierarchical. Yeah, I mean, I think the way you guys have kept it is the way to keep it from going like corporate, you know, yeah, to totally. keep that family forum vibe. Mm-hmm. So for somebody on the outside, when there's like a new signing or potential new signing, that would traditionally be your realm. Mm-hmm. But is it more of kind of like you guys all vibe on it together as a team because of what you described rather than you as the director of A&R technically going we're signing this band or whatever, right? Yeah. Everybody's got to be on board. Never right? in a million years would I do that. Um, yeah, I would never do that. There there are definitely places that I run that way. Again, the bigger a place gets, um, the harder it is for everyone to be on the same page. For True. example, when I used to work at Anti, and I loved working there, and I loved the artists and the roster. Um, I, I had a really good experience particularly creatively with that label. Um, But uh, it's a big company and, um, you know, I would bring something to the company and I would love for everyone to agree on it and and be down and be 100% in. But realistically, the company is too big for that. So there has to be some like veto action going on. Like me and Andy Culkin, who is the president and um you know main anr of anti he's been there um forever i think um <laughs> but uh you know we would be on the same page always about our signings and then we would like um you know a- andy wasn't didn't have any hierarchical spirit to him either we truly our job was to convince the label that they should care about this and why they should care about this makes sense but that was an uphill battle sometimes because uh, it's too big for that um yeah at saddle creek i'll bring something i have much more autonomy so i get to like figure out what i like um and what i think deserves the platform and then i'll bring it right to rob first Um, and our tastes are so aligned. Um, I definitely, we have our differences, uh, but we can usually always agree on a band that I like, like, um, and vice versa. But, you know, I think Rob has less time to really, uh, dig around and discover bands these days. So, Mm -hmm. but him and I are always on the same page, but I do have a personal, uh, moral policy that, you know, if, if, after like educating the label about this new discovery of mine and telling them why it matters and, um, you know, expressing my passion and want to sign the ban. If I get any pushback really like legitimate pushback, it's a no, you know, because, um, uh, I just, I want everyone to be a hundred percent down because if they're not, they're not going to work the record well. Yeah. Um, it, it, they might, but uh, I want them to have the passion for it because really totally. like uh, uh, if you're doing a hundred percent at your job, like you can't do that really without like that deep passion, I believe in label work. Um, and so that's this, the bands that I've signed to Saddle Creek so far, uh, we've all been on the same page about there have definitely been artists I've wanted to sign that I didn't get too far with or didn't end up signing because um, somebody it just wasn't enough of someone's thing. Um, and I think that that's the best policy. And when I do pass on somebody, it can be hard 
um, someone that I want to work with, but I, I have no problem explaining to them that they should be at a label where everyone's down and that it's like a disservice to them as an artist um, that like to be on a label where I couldn't make that happen. That's yeah. super legit. And as a musician, I really respect and value you taking the responsibility to like communicate that. Yeah. So, yeah. And it always ends up being a good conversation. You know, Um, these are people in that particular case. um, Those are artists I want to continue to have relationships with. I want to continue to support. Um, I'm not doing this for any other reason. And just because they don't end up on the label doesn't mean I can't have a relationship with them. So of course I want to explain to them my real um, reasons for, for my choices. And I, I say to them also, I say, um, you know, say you did come on the label. Um, uh, like I could take care of you and, and every, in the way of recording and anything Mm -hmm. A&R related, I can even take care of you on the digital and social media, but there are some things I don't do. I don't do radio. I don't do licensing. I have ideas about those things, but, um, I'm not responsible for those tasks. So if any of those people are are not like a hundred percent down then uh you know i i worry about those uh you know departmental needs i believe fully in the company and all the all the people i work with um to do their jobs well but i don't want to put a record on them that they don't love yeah no it's legit you speak the truth uh my band has been in a position where not everybody was on board and then Mm -hmm. We were in a position where everybody was on board and the difference in what you can accomplish is night and day. Oh my God. It couldn't be more different. Yeah, Yeah. it couldn't be. So I'm curious for you, it seems like a lot of people in the industry would say this, but I really feel like you really sincerely mean it and live it authentically that you're a music fan first, number one, and your job is through you being a music fan, not being a music fan in addition to your job, right? Yeah. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Sorry. I'm drinking into the mic. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I grew up in New Orleans and, um, and I talk about it a lot, almost obnoxiously, but it means so much to me, that city. It's the reason why I do this job. Um, you know, it, there was, I don't remember a time where music wasn't a huge part of my life. Um, I, you know, since the moment I was able to, I was going to shows the moment I found out about them, you know? And so, um, in my community back home, my music community, um, you know, I definitely talk to them less these days because we're all busy, but, um, you know, they mean a lot to me and I have so many relationships that have, uh, taught me, um, what it means to love music and what it means to support artists. And I really have New Orleans to thank for that. New Orleans is a place where, and I've said this before, industry is not really present there. No. Um, and that's not by chance, you know? There are people who have tried. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's There, there are some uh, music businesses there um, and uh, recording studios, whatnot, but like real, like industry people, <laughs> no, really. And so I didn't have any experience with that. I didn't grow up around it. Totally. I didn't even know what a record label was until like way later than probably most people did. Um, I didn't buy music 
through what a label put out, I um, it was very just always artist focused, word of mouth, uh, friends bands, friends of friends bands, the southern scene. So like New Orleans uh, artists supporting like Oxford, Mississippi artists yeah. supporting like, um, you know, these scenes that were more close to home for me. And so. Yeah, music first, obviously. Uh, musicians are the gatekeepers in New Orleans, not the industry. They are. Yeah. They're the bosses there. Yeah, and so true. I always grew up knowing that. And so when yeah. I got to LA, um, you know, you experience these uh, flipped politics and and they exactly. confused me from the, from the start. You know, people with ownership over um, things that I, I, you know, industry people with ownership over things I, I didn't really have experience with that growing up and I never felt that um so that was new for me coming here but yeah music first always artists first that's like what runs my moral compass when it in my job you know so legit and it's what we and myself as a musician has always appreciated about New Orleans which is uh going along with what you were saying it's exactly how you how you said it, it's music, musician oriented. They carry all the power there. Mm -hmm. And it's also free of this sort of pretense and ambition of getting popular or getting signed or making a bunch of money. <laughs> the reason I, we always love being there, especially my man RX, like we would get there and we would just resonate with the city because we have the same philosophy. And these musicians, they're doing two, four hour sets a day, whether it's to 10 people or 200 people during Mardi Gras when all the tourists are there. These guys, play all day every day they do their gigs you know this better than yeah. i do but and i know it so well being there and just going and soaking up that energy and just seeing and the guy playing in that tiny bar is already better than 90 percent of the people out here oh my gosh go to apple barrel you'll see these people who just blow everything out of the water totally. um, and that's all they do and then they go back to their um apartment or a tiny shotgun home in the bywater or wherever you know and and yeah that uh, people mistake it for a lack of ambition it's not that it's just this recognition of new orleans appreciating their spirit and um their 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 true passion um and it it yeah i think it it kind of eliminates this this drive to make it, you know, um, Bingo. I, I mean, some of those guys, um, some of those people that play on Frenchmen or, you know, in New Orleans, uh, playing like, yeah, three sets a night until 5am. I mean, they, uh, oftentimes, you know, I, times are hard right now, but oftentimes those people make more money than a lot of the musicians I know, yeah, true. um, you know, so in that way they they can be comfortable. Um, and I think they want to be in New Orleans. I also have in, in like the, you know, indie punk, whatever scene I grew up in. Um, some of those people I, I, I grew up uh, going to shows with and watching play, even they, some of them have stayed in New Orleans, you know, purposefully. Um, and I think you know, the people closer to my age are less resolute than, you know, the greats, but it, who play jazz in New Orleans and stuff and really have that strong uh, connection to the city. I think that like, I definitely have had friends who, who, who do want to leave and do other things, but I also have some that, um, that don't, and they're happy playing around town and putting together 
tours on their own, they'll still go play other cities. They just yeah. book their own shows. And that's, I think that's sick. <laughs> um, it is sick. Yeah. So, and I know this about RX because uh, technically that's where we met yeah. um, at a show a big outdoor like uh, festival, you know, run by the record label I grew up with, Community, Community Records. Records. I mean, guys, those are yeah. my those are my people, and so I know that about that your band because you were a part of that, and that's really uh, that's really meaningful, and it was really meaningful to the scene back home. Like they they don't receive that kind of uh, recognition and appreciation very often. Well, the honor was ours because, first of all, New Orleans is a legendary city, not just in the U.S., but of the world. It's a mm -hmm. world destination. And culturally and artistically, it's important to the world. And for an indie punk label like Community Records to approach us about flying us out to play this mm -hmm. outdoor Community Records festival, I, we remember the trip very well. It was a wonderful trip. The show was awesome. We were treated so well. And ever since then, I, I can't tell you, like, it was one thing when we started selling a thousand, two thousand tickets in New York or LA. But when we started to be being able to draw a crowd in New Orleans is like, it felt so special, like getting to do that or like even headlining Tipitina's like we did, like getting yeah. to even play Tipitina's. I was legendary, like, legendary. Club. This is sick. And for a few hundred people, you know, which to come see us there, I was just like, this is amazing. Oh my gosh, it felt so good. You yeah. know, I was right up in the front. Uh, yeah, that was such a good weekend capped off by that show. And um, you could feel it. It was so real. It's like, it's almost like I can count how, you know, a show like that and, you know, a festival put on by Community Records, it was a block party, you know, like... I don't, it's, it's hard to feel like that. That, that is so special. Yeah. And I, I am so privileged and, and lucky to have grown up in, in a environment like that in a passionate environment like that. Yeah. But it also taught me everything I currently know and feel, you know? Yeah. That's legit. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a huge honor. And I love that New Orleans is still so complete in that it's not, just overrun by jazz and blues and, and mm -hmm. stuff and Zydeco or whatever mm -hmm. you would think is traditionally I love associated. Zydeco. <laughs> I do too. I think it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I mean, the same thing that made Zydeco is the same thing that made all this awesome Creole Cajun totally. culture. I mean, when I go home um, in normal circumstances outside of COVID before COVID, um, you know, Oh, my mom, um, she lives in a place called Homa, Louisiana. Um, and it is, you know, it's, 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 um, South, uh, South from New Orleans, uh, pretty much like on the tip of Louisiana, um, mm. right next to the water, the Gulf of Mexico. And it's, it, you know, it's just an old Cajun town. And, um, and, those are the shows, you know, like I would go home uh, and me and my mom would want to go out for the evening and we would go to um, a Zydeco show that would usually be happening in like the uh, like bar lounge of like a weird motel or something right. like just such a different experience. But uh, same feeling as something yeah. like the Community Records block party, like just like um, passion, you know? Yeah. yeah. That just, 
I mean, for me as a Californian, I've been to New Orleans so many times now. I've spent a lot of time there, but it's hard for me not to romanticize it still. It's totally. Because it's my favorite city in the U.S. I still romanticize yeah. it. It's meant to be romanticized. Yeah. Like, it is such a romantic place. There's nothing. I, I just think it's. I think it's the most romantic place in the country and it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's very European, you know, so it, it has this like, it's just different. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I will say that uh, as long as I live, I feel just, you know, what are the chances you get to grow up there? It, it's just, I feel really lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I envy you for that. Yeah. yeah. So when you tell me about going to Zydeco shows with your mom down <laughs> yeah. south at outside at a hotel or something, yeah. I'm like, well, I, instantly my mind is like, there's probably a, like two giant crawfish boils going. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and I'm just like, I want that. Oh, my gosh. Right now. I have literally had that experience. One of the last times me and my mom went to a show in Homa when I was visiting her. Um, yeah. The they were boiling crawfish. <laughs> It's like yes. outdoor shows, like a lot of country stuff too. Um, you know, so line dancing and everyone dances in New Orleans. It, it's just, it's kind of wild that um, I'm, I'm not a good dancer because I had a lot of time to practice. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. Do you like dancing? Um, I... Or is the kind of insecurity wrapping I, up in itself oh, now yeah. so you can't I enjoy like it? it? In theory, I love watching people dance. One of the most like fascinating things to me is a great dancer. I yeah. love like, um, you know, just movement and um, I'm always moving around, like I yeah. said. So I appreciate dancing and I know a lot of great dancers. One of the only kinds of like, TV shows or I, movies I can watch are about like dancers or ballet or something, right, you cool. know? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm inspired by it, but no, I, uh, myself, you know, I have to be dragged from the bar yeah. or whatever, whatever, you know? I don't even think, unless I'm on stage, <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to dance without drinking in pills, to be I honest. I know. That's, it was like. Well, okay, you said it. Yeah, like, of course I've danced. <laughs> like, I've, I grew up working in bars in New Orleans. Um, I couldn't avoid it. And Zen. I loved it when it was happening. But, you know, I'd wake up the next day and see a video of myself dancing on top of my bar and uh, without any recollection and go, wow, you're a terrible dancer. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even embarrassed about the fact that I couldn't remember. I was embarrassed about the dancing. But, yeah, I mean, you know. Um, so these days, you know, I don't drink anymore, so, uh, which is great, but I'm definitely more hesitant uh, to dance. We'll see what happens after COVID because, you know, that's true. I've only been sober for a year and uh, almost six months, I guess, a year and a half. That's oh my sick. gosh, I should, I should check my app. It might even be like today or something. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it, it's a huge accomplishment for me. Um, it's changed so many things in my life that relate to music. Um, it's changed every facet of my relationship to music, I think. Um, and, uh, but you know, COVID has gone on for almost a year. So I was 
only sober with the opportunity to dance for like the first six months <laughs> or whatever. And so we'll see what happens after COVID if I try to give it a shot again. Karaoke was much harder after getting sober. Oh my God. It's something I used to really enjoy. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, but now it is so hard and I still go for it. But Oh, you do? Sure. You know, That's like. That's badass. Well, this is a thing. Like my anxiety is not really, I don't know, you know, who, who am I to say? Like, I guess a doctor or a third party should tell me, but my anxiety doesn't feel wrapped up in like, um, like in embarrassment necessarily it's more wrapped up in like and i'm sure these two are related people looking at me at all or like the sound of my voice or whatever and i guess that is wrapped up in in what people think of you but yeah uh i'll still karaoke because i still enjoy making a fool of myself it's just a little harder like there are a barrier has come up for sure Totally. And normally I would be drinking right now and right. having a great time. I mean, I'm having a good time, but you know what I mean? <laughs> totally know what you mean. It's about us finding this new way of having a good time, yeah. you know, and it's a lot of the times it's really uncomfortable and, and anxiety inducing. And of that's course. like the stuff that we're working through that we would normally before just self-medicate for. Right? Exactly. Like being in a studio sober is still funny to me. <laughs> um, you know, like clears debut. I'm looking around like, interesting. Yes, that could be cleaned. That could be cleaned. Like, <laughs> yeah. And you wouldn't be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I I forgot to ask you about this earlier because we were talking about- Oh, like, I do tangents. Totally. So you'll get wrapped up in those for, with me. I do tangents too. And <laughs> podcasting conversations are just naturally tangents. Oh, so yeah, it's all I guess good. You're right. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think what- it's all predicated upon, you know? Right. Yeah, because that means you're like compelled about what you're talking about and it's awesome. Maybe you know? I'll start my own podcast. I hey, I think you should. <laughs> um I wanted to ask you since we started on this back to your role and doing stuff at Saddle mm -hmm. Creek. You're a music fan first, like we talked about, but um Generally speaking, I know that there's going to be exceptions and stuff, but generally speaking, what is the flow of you finding new artists? If that's even something Saddle Creek's trying to do, because I understand that the label could also be like, we just are happy with our roster. If something we're stoked on comes cool. But if not, is it kind of you just being a music fan or is there a concerted effort by you to kind of keep your ear to the ground and see what's coming up? Um, you know, yeah, it's funny because I can't, I can't kind of, it's hard to differentiate because I'm just, my entire life, I've always had this natural drive to like find the next cool band <laughs> or, or the next thing I loved. And, and usually I would, you know, we all have a little ego, so <laughs> I we have all. always thought those were one and the same. Ah! But, uh, you know, my well-intentioned, of course, but I think that that drive um is really like the base of it and has always been the base of it continues to be the base of it like i'm uh, what i'm saying is i i've only gotten paid uh to go out and find um uh you know bands uh that people haven't heard of before or you know i've only gotten paid to do that for you know, uh, uh, under 10 years, like I've been doing that much longer. Some of my friends joke and they say like, you've been doing A&R for 15 years, actually. You just didn't know it. Yeah. 
like someone told me that one time and I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, you're the obnoxious one in the scene who's like, um, I found this cool band. You guys should check it out. Um, but also like just being in a tight knit community where again, wasn't hierarchical, um, bands hang out with, we're all friends. So it's like people hanging out together, you're hanging out with your friends, bands, and it's always word of mouth. And that still drives my, uh, and our style. So, um, and that's all always been the case. It's like, I don't even know people are like, I have a hard time on panels and stuff. Uh, describing my job, it's like conversations usually on panels are a lot less natural than this, right? They're not podcasts. So I'll get asked very direct questions like, um, what is A&R? And uh, that's just always a funny one to me because first of all, like, I don't know, you know, come, you know, come up with a more interesting question. I just like, uh, maybe that's not common knowledge, but it, you know, uh, it's hard to describe. It's like asking a musician what their music sounds like. Um, I well said, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, uh, and then like describe your process and it's always different. You know, um, I will say there are a couple of things I can say for sure. Um, like I said, my, my passion to, to find something I haven't heard before, um, or to find something that inspires me. Um, I'm really driven by that. I usually don't hone in on, on one genre or one sound. You know, if I love a band, I I'm not really interested in, and going out and finding one that sounds exactly like that because I know what I like. It's usually more like, oh, okay, that's really good. That They're the best at that. And now I want to go into a different direction and find the best of this other thing, you know? And that kind of drives, it's just like my passion for growing up, my passion for comics or whatever, you know, like just a discovery was always, uh, um, I'm just a nerd, you know? And, but, but, you know, now that I have a job and I do have a responsibility to keep it moving, um, you know, I, you know, I guess if I weren't like that, I'd have to instill this, like, uh, this, like, sort of, um, structure like okay we haven't signed something in a while and so i need to like get my shit together and go out and find something i just don't think i've ever done it done it like that way (laughs) that i was just constantly listening to new stuff always and so i just happenstance like i just find stuff that i'm like oh like i love this band oh they're not signed okay let me reach out and say hey like it's always natural yeah um yeah you live it. Yeah. Basically, you live it. And so it's like, it's exactly what I would have guessed, which is why I had you on the show, because you a real ass motherfucker. <laughs> and it's so Thanks. nice to hear somebody at an established label who is not part of the whole major label corporate thing, but still an established label yeah. based out of L.A. Mm-hmm. And to hear somebody talk like that rather than saying and you said the opposite when i find a band that i really like i'm not trying to find somebody else that sounds like them which is actually the business model of the major music industry which is this is hitting all right we need to pile on top of this exactly i was just talking about this the other day and what people don't realize that does is that it starts to homogenize what people want and what they're open to the listener 
among other things that I'm not even thinking about or mentioning. Well, yeah, let me mention one other thing. Um, when labels do that, they're pitting those artists against each other. They're too similar. Great point. I never thought about yeah. that. Great point. Um, so when you have, you know, how are you going to have two artists who sound very much um, in the same wheelhouse and how are you able to tell them that the radio guy or the licensing guy is going to do a great job for them and pitch them for the exact right things when that could apply to both of those bands. So who knows who is getting preferential treatment or whatever if they do. Yeah. Um, it's just unfair really at a, even if that's not like your creative way um uh, there's something beyond that morally for me, um, mm -hmm. signing things that sound really similar, you know, it's, sh it should not be done, uh, on a moral basis too. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think most labels and most corporate mm -hmm. suits who try to think of themselves as creative have the intelligence to understand <laughs> what you understand. Well, their overhead's too big too. So at the end of the day, their only concern is paying for their offices and right paying for their CEO's salaries right. and, um, and you know, they bet it all. So they That's have true. no wiggle room. They have, they half, they're worried about the bottom line. I mean, the, this is still business, you know, like Saddle Creek's still a business. So at, at the end of the day, we, um, we have to be smart too and what we can and can't afford, but um, we have no overhead. So we have the ability to be creative, but I will, I will say objectively speaking, like a lot of people don't. Um, That's yeah. true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They also have precedent set of being part of corporations that go back 60 years yeah. to the first, to establishing the first of the really corrupt business models, which is where like you were saying, it's a hard question for you to answer what A&R is. It's because the role, as you know, has changed so much. It, it traditionally means artists and repertoire. It mm -hmm. started back in the early, early days of record labels where that person would literally sign the artist and then also decide what they recorded and played, hence mm -hmm. artist and repertoire. And now someone like you in your role, um, it's a much more sustainable and holistic and to be honest, like intellectually uh genuine uh yeah. role to like want to work with artists and champion what you have passion for and you know all that yeah stuff. and a and r uh that position means many different things depending on which label and who you're talking to um because what i appreciate old school a and r um you know for example if you go to detroit and visit the uh, Motown Museum, which is in like the little house that it, it was in, um, which I did not too long ago. I signed an artist called Steph Chura. She's amazing. And she is from Detroit. And after we signed her, me and Rob went to visit her, something we like to do, um, see her hometown and like kind of experience it with her. It was a lot of fun. She used to work at a karaoke bar. She actually hosted karaoke. We had a lot in common. Um, but she uh, was from Detroit and we went to the Motown Museum and I had never been before. Um, I was so excited. And there's this room where you can see um, kind of like they have on or, you know, it might change. But when I was there, they had kind of like the plastered um they had these posters plastered on the wall of like their, what their kind of what I would call A&R process was, you know, uh -huh. they would find someone with lots of talent. Um, but then they would, it's almost like, 
so many people were involved. Um, uh, you know, you would always have your person, your A&R, right. but it's like, it was like a product line. Like they would take this artist. Um, yeah. And it was match them with a, a producer, match them with players if they didn't have players, uh, it, studio exactly. musicians. They would even go as far as, as to get, get them like a makeover, change their hair. Um, should they go by their real name? Um, right. It was so much more involved. Um, it's somewhat some positive ways, but also very, very, um, you know, uh, awful ways sometimes yeah, that I'm glad true. it's progressed beyond. Yeah. But these days it, it depends on who you're talking to um, at a much bigger place. For example, A&Rs are less um, hands on. When I was at Anti Records, um, of course, I got close to it. Artist relationships in general are very case by case. As as an artist, you probably know this. Um, there are some people you're gonna become family with, and then there there are some people where, um, totally. you know, you get along, but it's more professional. And and there's like such a spectrum there. Totally. Um, the bands that I've signed and worked with over the years, and there have been many. Um, there's a spectrum of relationships I had with them, um, all good, but like different, you know. Totally. And at bigger labels, you uh, you know, it is a bit of of like it's it's a progressed product line but it does mirror that in some ways because you know me and Andy would take a band on and then sort of they get funneled to the uh product project manager and head of digital and uh they have like a more direct relationship with their radio person and um all that stuff uh and they kind of you know um uh, you know we would we would have the most artist facing relationship with them, but like th the things that concern their career weren't in our, we had no say in lots of those things. Right. Um, it was very much like, yeah, it, it had to be this structure. Right. Um, but at Saddle Creek, it's a bit different. I did, I get to dig in a little more. Um, I get to really be involved um, in a deeper, more meaningful way, you know, like, and in this way, it does uh, mirror some positive things, uh, A and R of the past. Like I do, I you know, at Saddle Creek, I've I've taken on some very very uh, beginning young artists who are getting started. Um, it's just amazing some of these some of these people and the talent they have at that stage and that age. Um, but you know, like. Uh, at this company that I'm at now, they, when, when I meet them, they usually don't have a team at all yet. Right. Um, I am the only, sometimes I'm the only industry person they know so far because I found them on Bandcamp and I'll reach out to like their, their Gmail and, or I have to, oh my gosh, I've had to like message people on Facebook because I couldn't <laughs> find an email. Like I, I'm scrappy, you know, like I have to like, in the sense that like, if it, if I can't find a contact, I will, I don't stop. I want to reach out. Um, and oftentimes these, these people and younger artists are just, they're just doing it because they love it and putting their stuff up on Bandcamp and they're not a part of the industry yet. And I'm, you know, I, I want to provide them with, with opportunities. I want, I want them to be able to make a career and a living out of this and also protect them from some of the uh, worst parts of the industry. That's a big responsibility of mine. And I take it seriously and I'm able to do that more consciously 
at Saddle Creek than I was able at Anti because um, I'm more involved at Saddle Creek. Um, it's a family, like I said, so there are definitely departments and people who do other things, but I can, I'm there with them along the way. And I'm more involved in the recording process. I'm often reaching out to people who don't have records ready. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, they have a couple demos up and I, I just see that they show potential and they inspire me and I want to help them make their first record. I do debuts, you know, like That's I help sick. people make their first yeah. records. Like, you know, not a hundred percent of the time I've, I've definitely taken on artists who have already like self-release something before but um that is the case sometimes that is something i've never gotten to do before saddle creek because um for some of the bigger indies and definitely major labels um you know uh, you know they they're not interested sometimes in hearing like really rough demos they like want something that's kind of already ready um and ready to go they definitely want to fine-tune it but um there's a lot of work in taking on someone who hasn't made a record yet so much work yeah Yeah. and and when you have a lot of overhead and your time is limited and you're paying for a huge staff um you just it's it's more of a pain to to get involved that early and um I'm not saying there aren't passionate people at those labels who want to. Oftentimes they're not allowed to or able to, um, you know, and uh, because they just, you know, usually the sentiment I hear is, well, let them just self-release the first one um, and we'll see how it does. And then let's hit them up if it does well. And I don't think they're ready yet. And, you know, I've heard these things pass around and it's yeah, such bullshit tropes. you know yeah. because totally. um if you really care and if you think that they um are capable why wouldn't you want to get involved at that point because what if that self-release record does do well and you don't have the chance to get involved after that totally. like it's worth it you know to invest in an artist early because um you know when no one else is um is putting their necks out on them. They like, you know, that creates such loving relationships because you believe in each other, you know? That's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that mentality that you speak of also has come to this really gross singularity now where people are signing people literally based on the amount of followers they have on social media. And that's not even a few cases here and there. That's what I'm speaking of is actually also become an industry norm. So fucking stupid. Honestly, like they're making my job easier because if that's what they're going off of, that's not setting, like that's not planting the seed for a loving, trusting relationship. That's putting a price tag on an artist or, you know, uh, stamping them with, um, um, uh, it's a market price and um, it yeah. has nothing to do with the music. <laughs> yeah. And I'm know? almost glad counterintuitively mm-hmm. that they're doing that because it finally exposes yeah. exactly what they view these oh my artists gosh. for. It's unapologetic. It's unapologetic <laughs> and it's so brazen. And it's like, okay, at least now we know. I know. And you know? like, and you can't deny that. I hope some of them hear this because um, it's just me. I'm like, man, you're not even trying to hide it. Like, yeah. You, I see people reach out to artists and say, like, I saw that you had, uh, you know, 200,000 plays on this song that you self-released. And if if you're leading with that, it's and gross. I want to tell artists, if someone's leading with it's that, gross. please be concerned. Yes, um, If that's what they're 
their interest is is gauged by um that sets a bad tone i think um and i'm not sure why people like admit to the fact that they found something that way or even know that shit like i don't even look at that that (laughs) stuff if i can avoid it you know i'm not trying to blow smoke i just like that's that doesn't interest me because what i'm interested in is like finding something no one's heard of before and then and then helping it uh get to those many plays because i think it's good you're interested (laughs) in the essence of your role there between as the conduit between the artist and the label and i agree with you completely and like those labels that we speak of that are doing that i personally think that they're doing that because they've run out of ideas Mm -hmm. they don't understand that the sort of segregated and compartmentalized subcultures that they can just dip their little mosquito beak into Mm -hmm. and suck out of to like keep themselves going all that's starting to come together and meld into the one big pot where there's still different things but the walls separating them aren't really there totally homogenizing and also i like to call this cherry picking or some, cherry of the, picking, some yeah. of these people are just waiting for for me to do the work or you know other labels smaller labels i love to totally. do the work and then they just cherry pick those people um they know that there are smart totally. uh, smarter smaller more passionate labels out there who are actually developing artists so they don't have to because their uh you know shiny logo can really uh, make it possible for them to swoop in um based on their own clout and sign someone away and that happens all the time you know it's true Mm -hmm. and you know it's up to the artists they need to go where they feel best where they want to go um it should go that way so even speaking in in terms of of that feels wrong sometimes but that is i know it to be on the industry side of bigger labels like um that's how they they find people but i will say this at the end of the day like um you know when artists make transitions uh, my my hope from one label to another my hope is that they're that every one does that every artist is doing that because they really want to and they feel that it's the best move for them um yeah and so there's something to be said for not getting too worked up about somebody signing a band away from you because um they made that decision the artists made that decision um and i know the history of time tells you that they're tricked some people are tricked into thinking that they're making a good decision for themselves and we know that happens um but i want to believe that um they're they're making that decision in my case when it's when i've had to say goodbye to an artist that it's because they're on to to better things and they're on their way and hopefully you know we did a good job and helped them move on and and become more successful that's legit yeah um every artist could be well i should say any artist would be lucky to work with someone like you that always carries that mentality through everything they do um so i'm really curious being an old kind of like veteran musician now i kind of venture out because i do music outside of my realm but mostly exist in my own kind of vacuum of our fans and people that tune into what i and my bands do and stuff um how is the state of music coming up right now because you're someone so connected like obviously the days of 
tons of bands getting into vans before anybody knows who they are and traveling the country are kind of coming to a close, but you are still managing to find these artists with this compelled attitude and these compelled artists and have these passionate relationships, creative relationships where you do stuff. So how is the state of that right now? Um, gosh, it's hard to answer this because of COVID. Everything has sort of changed every single thing. And, uh, you know, we don't have to talk about that a lot, but maybe we should start mentioning some of these things because state of music right now is is pretty sad. The morale is low, even for people who have support, even for the artists on my label. Some of them struggle because they're not touring right now. Totally. It does not mean there is sometimes this misunderstanding that if you get signed, you've made it and you'll be good. Um, <laughs> that's definitely not the case. It, it, it requires two things. It requires you to continue working yeah. <laughs> and it requires a great label who cares and is ready to go. Isn't yeah. going to wait six months to start uh, giving you deadlines for artwork after they've signed you. Like uh-huh. it requires a label to be ready to jump in and, and do their job but it also requires artists who uh want to make it happen for themselves and have the drive to yeah if you get signed if you're doing it right you're going to work harder than you ever have before oh my actually. gosh yeah. i tried if you're doing it right as people, an artist yeah. things don't get easier no they actually get harder they yeah. get weirder it is it is a true um it's an agreement to enter into something that is far more complicated than what you started doing. The thing. Yeah, both parties have <laughs> obligations to the other, yeah. which complicates it. Yeah, so I don't know. It, you know, it's um, it's different and it's harder for people to motivate right now, which can like. I think the state of music, like people need a morale boost. Um, You know, some artists are really feeling it and kind of um, some are doing great and locked down, making a ton of music, way more music than they've ever made before. You know, I'm really excited for some of the people I know who have just been like overworking during COVID in their Mm -hmm. studios. There's so much good music to come. But I also know that... um, there are lots of artists who it's really fucked up their ability to be creative. Um, and, uh, so it's complicated right now, but outside of that situation, outside of COVID, it's interesting. I hear what you say, but I feel like, and my lens is different now because I'm at Saddle Creek. I moved over to Saddle Creek for a few reasons. I got offered fair pay for the first time in my life. (laughs) Um, And that's important. I don't come from money, so I need to survive. Um, And, but, but many reasons. I love the label. I love Rob who, who runs it and everyone there. And I love the artists Um, and the autonomy, like we said, but also it reconnected me to a more DIY atmosphere because it's the first place I worked like uh, where I could, uh, like we said, sign debut records um, where it, it, so in that way, the spirit of my job and the spirit of how I see the industry is a little more skewed in that direction. I actually do see a ton of DIY spirit these days. um, And I still know people who book their own tours. Um, uh, You know, when they want me to, I will help them try to find a booking agent, but sometimes people don't. I was just talking to a band, uh, a really, a really um, popular band actually. Oh yeah, Andy and Thou. Um, I was talking to him and I asked him for a recommendation for a booking agent um, for a band kind of in his wheelhouse. 
And uh, I think they've had people do stuff for them, but he pretty much was like, yeah, I don't know. We book, we mostly book our own stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like that band is popular. It blows yeah. my mind. Some people still have that spirit and that's what I live for. You know, he, he, he answered with that. And I was just like, man, that's really fucking cool. You know, <laughs> like yeah. however harder that makes their lives, I feel for those parts of it. But I think they do it because like they're in control um, and I don't know them. This is just what Andy says um, in in our personal, uh, you know, conversation and relationship. But, um, you know, I still see a lot of that. And um, I think the pendulum swung back, you know, during the vinyl boom. It sort of made the industry a little less corporate and a little more. uh, It took it back, you know, a little bit. Um, And so I think that, you know, um, I don't know, like I, I, uh, I think during my, uh, you know, come up in my, my career and, and, and experience in A&R, uh, just so happened to sync up with that vinyl boom. Um, you know, I, at Epitaph, I assisted somebody who got involved with a record pressing, pressing plant in New Jersey. And so I was assisting him during the process of him opening up, um, this business and, um, learned a lot through that. And also like realized what was happening. Like, uh, there's a reason why someone would open a vinyl (laughs) plant because the need was really there and you know that sort of the fact that that uh that existed and that 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 like someone uh would open a vinyl plant means that like you know the industry is sort of experiencing kind of like you know a a more um like a renaissance of of realness and uh, diy culture but that always that sometimes gets um uh what what am I trying to say? Sometimes DIY is used, um, you know, to make things seem cooler when it, it's not actually like that. But totally. it depends on what you're talking about and who you're talking about. But I think there's a, a, there is an appreciation for this sort of uh, yeah. thing where like, you know, the industry experience before that, uh, you know, it was cool to get signed to a major label. And for some people it still is, <laughs> but that was the goal for everybody, you know, and like uh, corporate wasn't too bad. Like that, um, you know, I mean, it, it's gone in waves, right? Um, you know, I hear both these days and I, and I, in some ways I believe in both. I, I think like, um, I don't sell out in some ways, but, you know, we live in a capitalist society, so sell out in some ways if you have to, as long as you're not hurting anyone, you know, like take the weird radio gig if you need the money, like I won't hold it against you, but like, you know, people make it work for you, like make a living, um, but, um, but stay true to what you're doing. Yeah. And so I think that on my side of things, the state isn't so bad. Do you feel like there is just as many bands as there was 15 years ago coming up going, I don't care if we make it or how we just love this so much or musicians because Um, to, you know, to me, from my mm -hmm. perspective, I don't think I have a clear view of everything, but just from my tiny little view in life, I feel like I'm seeing that less. Am I wrong or seeing uh, like caring about what do you mean? 
I mean, specifically just people going, this band isn't just a hobby or me being a musician isn't just a hobby. Like, I really want to come up and make this happen, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, You see less of that now? I feel like I'm seeing less of that. Is Uh, that just because I'm detached from my own personal path? Like, and maybe you are also... You I, granted that you are also further away than you used to be mm-hmm. now being part of this L.A. Mm-hmm. music structure, although conducting business in a very different way, still mm-hmm. part of the the larger scheme of that. Like, what is your view on that? Uh, like, do you are you asking me if if I see more people trying to make it these days or the opposite? Or I guess a more uh, concise way of me asking is, do you feel like the pool that you are drawing from with your music mm-hmm. fan passion going, I want to mm-hmm. seek this out and I'm finding this artist on yeah. Bandcamp. Is that pool the same size as it Got was? It. Um, yeah, I understand. So um, I think there are way more bands these days and maybe oh, that's okay. because, Growing. yeah. And you know, like you say, that's colored by my experience. Um, I come from a very insular scene, New Orleans. Uh, people come in, they, like we said, they don't really come out. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, or they come and go, you know, it's very transient. Um, but I come from an insular scene where like, you know, I went, grew up, I went and saw the same band like once a week (laughs) and I love doing it, (laughs) you know, but, um, like this band Caddy Wampus from back home, I've seen them more times, I I think, than I've seen any other band still in my lifetime. <laughs> and 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 I moved away from New Orleans a long time ago. That's right. So I would see the same bands over and over again. I still love that band. We're still very good friends, and they are still sick as fuck. Um, <laughs> but you know, I I think I think there are more bands now because I am removed from my tiny little insular scene and. And um, I'm not sure what's changed from an objective point of view, but I will say this. I think there are just legitimately more bands because there are more, there are easier ways to make music these days. And there's more I of an that. acceptance of like bedroom recordings. That and, makes sense, yeah. And I think people's barriers are a little down in, in terms of like their abilities. And, and, and um, you know, yeah. I see a lot more people who they're, they have two passions like they they're great textile artists or something or, or designer but there's less of like a like a rule like who can and can't be a musician these days you know totally it's way more it. open i feel like um, i feel like and, that too, and accepted yeah. you know which is definitely like a a punk philosophy you know that i think has has become more pervasive like anyone can play music um and i think that's that's bigger these days um you know i see that i see people who are stepping out I, i'm talking to one artist right now who i am really um excited about and want to work with and and i think we'll end up working together but um Nice. I think she's still in college. She was mentioning we were talking about school um, and we're, we're just getting to know each other. We've had like two FaceTime calls so far. Um, and, um, you know, she's she's young and she's never she's just realizing that she's a musician. You know, she she's been a writer for a long time. And I read some of her stuff when I when I sought out um she put up there were like three uh, songs she like threw up on a band camp that like I didn't hear of from anyone else and um, like very simple songs but such great songs like a uh, bass player um, and her songs driven by bass like coolest voice um, and I just stumbled on this like band camps really good sometimes at like 
if you let it go on the radio feature, like it will show you stuff you've never seen before. Yeah. No other DSP does that. Yeah, that's right. When when I'm playing a radio station uh, on Spotify, I I know everything that it's playing. Like right. it it's not that obscure. Yeah. But Bandcamp could get pretty obscure, so um, her music popped up there, and then I did see another uh uh musician who had posted about it but anyway we're talking to each other and she um she's talking about school and writing and stuff like she and she didn't realize that like that was just fun she threw those up for fun she wasn't trying to seek out any industry support she she uh before covid she was living in a house that booked shows and stuff and like she was a fan first and she like moved into the house this is in new brunswick and she moved into the house um you know on the college or around the college campus somewhere um with two other friends i think and they started booking shows at the house and she's young like i just thought it was so cool um and that's still happening and i told her i was like I am so glad this is still happening. You know, when you're saying this to a a younger artist, you almost feel like a boomer. You're like, of course it's still (laughs) happening. We weren't special. Like people are still doing this. Nothing's really going to change. I've had that same conversation with myself. I just think it's not happening before because I'm a narc now and I'm not getting invited. (laughs) Um, Like, it's like, okay, also if you're listening to this and you're about to throw a house show, you know, post-COVID, please invite me. I still want to go. I promise I won't call the cops, <laughs> you know, like, uh, but she's, it was kind of funny when we were talking, she was like, um, you know, like, um, you know, I'm sad because the, we, we had to stop doing that at COVID when COVID broke out and we were having really good shows and it was so sick. And, you know, like when I moved here from South Africa, um, I, um, she was felt really like isolated socially, like many artists can and do. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had this, like, she's an artist through and through. She was writing, um, for, for impressive, like impressive writing for someone her age. And I think it was always in her, her ability as a musician, it was always there and it was just waiting to come out. And it came out through her living in that house, um, uh, booking shows with her roommates, meeting the bands that come through town that would hop on the show and just being a fan. She was just like at the show alone, you know, Mm -hmm. like me, she would just, I didn't need anyone to go with me to a show. Like she was just there every show. She told me that she knew about, uh, that was happening in New Brunswick. She would go, you know, no matter what it was or who was playing. And I totally, that resonated with me. It didn't matter. Um, you know, and she said just through that experience and getting, feeling, more comfortable around these artists these musicians who accepted her in ways she hadn't felt before um made her realize that that she had even more in common with them than she initially even thought and she said like you know she went to guitar center to like buy a bass for her partner um because i think he already knew how to play actually and um you know i think her partner and if she she listens to this, I'm sorry if I'm getting any of this wrong, but I it, it you know you get the drift. Uh, and I think her partner said something like, "Why don't you get a bass guitar? Like, why don't you try?" Yeah. Um, and you know, I loved the people in my life who have um, you know politely put me in that position, pushed me, 
And um, they're really supportive of each other, you know. And so she got a bass and loved it from like day one and um, just started writing on her bass. And uh, as a writer and kind of like very emotional writer, uh, she's a writer like not the songs, but before the songs, like when right. she wrote more long form stuff um, for publications and, and whatnot. Um, emotional, funny writer. That's what struck me. You know, I was like, this person writes with so much personality, so much humor, like and intelligence. It was so impressive. I just like reading this stuff before talking to her and only having heard a, a couple like demos that she threw up. Like I was like, this is such a lyricist. Like this person is meant to write songs. I just know it from reading her stuff online. And I feel that, you know, and we jumped on a FaceTime call and I was like, those first three demos she threw up, like, yeah, sure. They're, they're like, you know, um, you know, it was her first go at it, but wow, like the structure and just like the baseline, so impressive. It was this, just this natural talent. She had no idea. And now she like, in her lyrics, I, it was true. Like she is a lyricist, she is a writer. And since then I've hooked her up with a producer um, that I work with uh, named Ryan Hemsworth. And they made a really cool song together that they're still working on. And this is a producer who has had years of experience working with all kinds of people, pop stars and, and but he's an indie dude at heart. And that's yeah. why he's working with me at Saddle Creek. But, um, has a, a, just such a deep appreciation for songwriters and um and her and him clicked it's like their experiences couldn't be more different they're very removed from each other you know she lives in new brunswick he's in toronto um outside of toronto but you know and they just clicked and they and they sent me a demo that was just it was so cool and so like this is what she was meant to do, you know? And that's sort of, I don't know, even this tangent I've gone on, this story kind of explains in a much uh, more meaningful way uh, in answer to your question earlier, like, what is your process? Like, literally that, that's the process. Oh, you're right. And it also answers the question yeah. about whether that's still happening. Yeah, and that's still happening. That's a great example. Um, was yeah. she familiar with Saddle Creek Records when you approached her? So I'm not sure, actually. Um I'm trying to think what she said. Oh, okay. She did say, I've really enjoyed our conversations and I just love talking about this because um, this is someone I'm getting to know currently um, and we're having a lot of fun getting to know each other. But uh, she said something like, um, the artist I'm most familiar with or I'm familiar with on your label is Ada Leah. Hmm. And let me tell you, I just thought that was so cool because I was like, you know, people come to me and they're like, oh yeah, Bright Eyes. Bright Eyes, or like, Bright Eyes, Bright Eyes. Like Kali, um, yeah. Or whatever, like something old school. And now these days it's like Big Thief because everyone loves that band um, as well as I do. So, um, you know, that is like, a, they'll be around doing it for a long, long time. But Adalia is a newer signing of mine. We put out one record so far. Uh, she actually just turned in mixes for the next one that are just so phenomenal. And I can't wait for people to hear this. But she's from Montreal and it's a little more obscure. And her music is is super experimental and cool. And um, but you know, she's still getting there and we're still building her project. And um, 
and it's going to be awesome. I, I can't wait till people hear this next record. But I was so impressed with the fact that she like, that's the band she name dropped to me from Saddle Creek because one, it's like, that was one of my signings and that's just such a proud moment. And two, like, I consider this person, I consider her like, cool. You know, like, I think she's cool. And she name dropped this like more obscure artist on the roster who is doing like, really, really interesting stuff that people are gonna wake up to uh -huh. and, and appreciate. And many have already, but you know, it's was a really cool name for her to drop. But yeah, I mean, um, she was familiar in that way. So that must tell me that like, I didn't ask her directly. I, I feel like those questions are funny. Like, I don't like to assume that any artist I'm I'm reaching out to knows who the label is. That's yeah. one of the first things I say. I, I, something sense. like, you know, I, I'm not sure if you know anything about Saddle Creek. If you don't, let's get on the phone. And I'll tell you about the label. Um, and often, you know, they'll say like, of course, I'm familiar. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I didn't really know anything about Saddle Creek until like um, shockingly uh, late, you know? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't like to assume, but she knew something about it, uh, in, in the way of my own signing. And yeah. so that's awesome. Well, that's, I, I would suspect that about you cause you're a down earth person. <laughs> if you did walk around with this pretense about I'm from sad, that would just make you a butthead, which you're not. Jeez, so. People do that. Though. Oh yeah. They do it so much. I mean, there's this like, it's like the there's douchiest. this, yeah, there's this like very, um, man, there's this like attitude about doing A&R, I think like, and I, I've seen this, it, it's, it, I've had moments where it's made me want to quit my job, but, um, you know, you know, there are a few women A&R, there are very few, uh, people of color that do A&R, um, Tyler at Father Daughter, He's one of my favorite A&Rs and um, he is just doing such an amazing job of lifting up black voices in our community. And um, I love his work, but there are people in the industry who walk around with this sense of ownership and it's usually white older men. Um, and they think that being A&R means like you're head honcho, you're the coolest guy yeah. in the room, but Man, you know what this is like, probably. It's like th there's always that guy. You walk, you go, I go backstage to say hey to a friend's band, and there's some like whatever AR label dude who's just not quite fitting in in the room, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, yeah. there's a reason for that. If he would just chill, then maybe everyone would totally. be down. Totally. But, um, but yeah, like there's this like a boisterous attitude about doing A&R that is so off-putting. And really, so it, it's, I often take it on as a responsibility for me to show people that like I'm in it for the right reasons. Um, and so, yeah, I don't like to assume because I see people doing that all the time. Like I'm from, you know, like, oh, you don't know about my lip or like being offended when an artist doesn't really right. know. Um, but why should they? Who gives a fuck? You know, yeah. like whatever. Totally. And it, we're for the reasons that you're or uh, under the, the pretense and the reasons that you're trying to connect with artists, that wouldn't even be a thing. Obviously, yeah. you know, yeah, what I mean? of course. So, and that's why, as I, re I said this to you before, that's why I refer to you as like a blade, like <laughs> half vampire. So half industry person but half human, like half coming from a real scene with a real passion for music. 
you know, so you'll never lose yeah. that core. And you know what's sad? At some of the bigger, bigger indies, um, you know, for some of the like bigger, bigger indies, uh, some of the politics surrounding those labels and the way that they do business and have started doing business lately mirrors the politics of major labels, which is what right. makes me worried for the future of music. Yeah. So we, you were like, how's the state of music? On the fan side, artist side, great. On the industry side, a little worrisome because um, the industry has just changed so much and there's only, there's I have no control over that stuff. Um, but um, as, as far as it's like, I have my head to the ground and with the music and stuff. But when I do look up and look around me, I'm like, man, like, bigger indies are consolidating and becoming uh, under this like name, you know? Um, and uh, that's, that happens in, in like label groups, you know? Yeah. Um, and I consider that to be pretty corporate. Um, totally consolidation corporate. is worrisome in yeah. any sense. Um, you know, it, it makes it, it homogenizes things creatively, but it also means that then there's one guy at the top of like four different labels under his umbrella and he might have really passionate people working at these labels who want to sign really fucking good bands and actually any label i'm referring to does have those people because i know them yeah but at the end of the day they don't have autonomy so yeah. they can't technically bring people on on uh, you know they don't have the power to um they have the power to bring things to those people at the top but those people at the top are protecting their bottom line and yeah. so that's yeah. how they set up that bureaucracy just and so that to retain that power. exactly and more yeah. indie labels are set up that way these days yeah um shout out to the ones who aren't and they all know who they are you know some of my favorite labels you know like polyvinyl and totally and um you know, it's funny. I'm stopping there. Um, <laughs> well, there, I'll say there's that some more that I love. There, our experience <laughs> at Sergeant House with Kathy was yeah. exactly that, yeah. which was getting everybody on board because it's a small team. Yeah. And you have everything in house, like a true boutique label. But that that line of concept to action and manifestation is so much shorter than a lot of these corporate major label bureaucracies where you're like, let me talk to this guy who's talked to the art director from that department who's got a, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what yeah. you've described that your whole way of working and the structure of Saddle Creek is the antithesis of. And exactly. so going along with other labels that you were naming, like Sergeant House is definitely one of them. Totally. And I know that. Kathy runs yeah. label that way. I've talked to people about it, you know, um, and that's, I have, I have yeah. friends on that label, other friends like yeah. Nick from Tara Melos and yeah. um, some other people who have told me the same thing about that, that label. A lot of respect for what Sergeant House has done. And I've been a fan of those bands for a long time, way before I worked yeah. in music. I nicknamed Kathy the laser. That was my <laughs> nickname for her because just able to be like, she was down with an idea. It was happening. Yeah. Like she made shit happen, Yeah, you know, and because she built the right team of people just be like, all right, let's get this done. It right. wasn't, you know? And yeah. She's very on it. Um, I worked, um, you know, at Anti, I worked with Deaf Heaven. So, um, Word. yeah. So Kathy was working with that band at yeah. the time. Um, and might still be, I have no idea. But um, yeah, so I had some experiences with her. And yeah, I always, 
I can see clearly who those people are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, in the first five minutes. Yeah. It doesn't take long. Yeah. It's like falling in love. You know, like you just know you, you can see the people who are in it for the real reasons pretty yeah. right off the bat. They wear their passion on their sleeve. They're unabashed. They're unapologetic about being fans first. Yeah. I say I, fan first. You're so right. I mean, yeah. I have like a carbon monoxide detector, like an industry person <laughs> detector in my oh head. Oh my like, God. It's like I you can, can tell, feel it when they walk in. I can tell by the way they greeted me. <laughs> oh my God. How, you know? Even I have like deflected guilt back on myself for like <laughs> being that, you know, like I already feel like I'm like, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Even when I walk backstage at a show that I've been invited back to, right. it's almost like I don't always go backstage. You know, sometimes I just stay in the fucking crowd because like no one wants to be a buzzkill, no matter how down you might be. Totally. Sometimes you're no matter how cool you are, you're going to come off uh, as like, you know, the meme that's. Steve Buscemi with the like backwards hat, yeah. like, <laughs> like whatever. I'm cool kids. Like that's, you can still feel like that. I still feel like that. I you know? feel like that at my own shows. <laughs> yeah. Like my band is headlining and I feel like Steve Buscemi with the skateboard. Like, I'm just like, Hey guys, like I've been doing this for 20 years. I got plus an years, idea but... for a Halloween show. <laughs> yeah. But even like at my friend shows, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm apprehensive about going backstage because oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm, I don't want to sit back there with a bunch of people I don't know that they know and just have this pretense like I'm so-and-so from this band and I'm yeah, here because of that. Yeah, that needs to be I'm a zone. Like, that needs to be a zone where whoever's playing can really like prepare themselves or party if they want to. But yeah. it needs to be uh, the the energy of uh, backstage needs to be directed by the people who are playing. They need to be in charge of what energy that is, no matter what it is. Um, right. If, you so know, right. like they want to do some weird shit, you know, that's what's happening. <laughs> so if you're not down, maybe you should leave. Um, if they want to read a fucking book, which I see way more often these days, oh, I yeah. think there's a huge wave of like... I know so many more sober musicians than I used to. And oh, yeah. there's, I think there's definitely something has changed in that way. Um, uh, you know, the scene back there is way calmer these days, uh, uh, at least for the bands and a lot of the bands I work with, like they don't want that shit. I love Keep that. It that's a trend back yeah, there. And I if you it. don't get the fuck out, you know, <laughs> and sometimes I like when I'm feeling, you know, I deal with mania and I deal with uh, hyperactivity um, I deal with, with, uh, co-occurring mental illnesses. Oftentimes like, um, you know, me and artists, uh, some artists I work with relate on that in that way. But even when I'm like, you know, when I get nervous, I can talk a lot, which is actually why a podcast is great for me. Maybe I should do more of these. <laughs> but even when I'm feeling like that, I'll excuse myself because like, totally. yeah, you want it to be calm. Even if you're friends with the person, if you're not carrying the right energy, you need to have some self-awareness, you know, read the room kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our dressing room has been like that for some years now. And we even have a thing where even our closest friends and family, mm -hmm. like 30 minutes during set change before we go on stage, we just clear the dressing room. Oh, you know? yeah. And, so and I us. remember coming to a show of yours, gosh, in another state somewhere. I cannot remember now. Maybe I know I went to the show at Shuba's years and years ago. I went to a show at Shuba's with y'all. But um, there was another one. Um, yeah, I'm remembering like a church or so, like a big stately venue. Any, anyway, um, those are my drinking days. So my memory's a little fuzzy, but I do remember yeah. like I got to the show, texted Matt and, um, 
And, uh, you know, at this point, I wasn't super young. So like I knew I still had this mentality even before I worked in music, like, you you know, as an adult, but like, I still understood that. And so like, you know, he's like, let's, you know, uh, yeah, let me come say, hey, and then let's like, let's go hang after the show. And it's like, yeah, uh, the fact that someone would even come out and say, hey, I'm like, literally don't worry about it i'll just see you after the show like that's just how it should be there's a lot of pressure i think for for artists to have to like hang at the show and it's like it's weird you know like um you know that's like they're literally on the job they're like working and there's this thing i i always talk about like people i wish people had more um and i've been guilty of doing all the wrong things uh you know and I don't blame the drugs and alcohol, but it had a hand in me overstepping boundaries. It's it, it, everyone's done it. But there's this thing I talk about sometimes where it's like bands are on tour. So and when it is fun, it's it, it's like this this atmosphere is existing in every place they go. And if this band knows a lot of people, um, you know, across the states, that person is only only has like that show on their calendar so like they're coming ready to like hang when the band like maybe has been expected to do that the last 13 nights with their other friends who are in other states and i feel like there's less awareness about the fact that like okay i get that you were really looking forward to this seeing your friends but you got to think about how they've been on tour for like three weeks now and totally. you know ashley and austin really wore them out last night and bob and new orleans was right. uh, made them stay up until 6 a.m you're like okay um not everyone people can't hang consistently and that that's created really unhealthy you know touring situations and unhealthy habits and things and i think about this stuff a lot and so it's really important um to me that that the artists I work with feel comfortable on tour and don't have to deal with like yeah. energies like that. Yeah. That's super uh, sensitive of you. And as you know, now, whenever you get sober or kind of clean up your act and stop partying, uh, it means just disappointing a lot of people that you used to, <laughs> yeah. that you used to be able to connect oh with. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Um, just that look on their face. So they're like, Oh, we're at simultaneously. They're taking in that not only, do you guys not get to connect that way? But all of a sudden they're feeling like you're judging them because mm-hmm. you don't do that anymore. And oh it's like, gosh. you know. Yeah. And both both parties deal with that. Like, yeah, totally. They're, oh, man. <laughs> I had a lot of concerns. Not to make this about me. Sorry. But I had a lot of concerns. No, it's about on- you. It is about oh, right. I forgot. <laughs> but I had, um, I've had a lot of experiences since I got sober. I had this huge this thing that like I couldn't get over. I was so terrified to actually like get sober for real because I thought that it was going to make me bad at my job because you're told that A&R is like, you're the one who has fun with a band. And that's very, that's an old school thing as well that that I think needs to, needs to get out of the equation. I mean, don't be a buzzkill and do have fun. But, um, yeah, but there's always this sense of like, when I started, it was kind of felt like that, like, um, like you're taking them out. 
uh, we're going to dinner wherever you want, and then we're going right. to uh, whatever bar you want, and I am going to pay for all the lifts, and we're going to like <laughs> spend money, and uh, we're going to go to the <laughs> casino, and maybe we want to go to uh, Old Cella and see Neil Young play, yeah. um, even though tickets are like $700. And like, it's just this very like, and these are all things I actually did with artists I work with. <laughs> these aren't imagine, just. Yeah. <laughs> big examples and but none of those times do I regret amazing all of it but um you know this sense of like um yeah party kind of like go 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 um sort of yeah you're the one who makes sure the band has a good time and so when I got sober I was like shit like I'm gonna be fucking boring now (laughs) no one's gonna want to sign with me because I can't have a good fucking time because all I can think about is how I want to drink And that couldn't be further from the truth, actually. Like, when I got sober around that time, like, I was, I was courting a uh, a band that I really love. And I was scared that our relationship was going to change because it started and it's very, like, we drank a lot together um, and did lots of things together and they weren't quite signed yet. And I was like, well... I guess that's, I have, say la vie, you know, because like, you know, they were still doing their thing. I was the addict. Um, and so I was scared, but nothing changed. It's like, as long, I, I feel like for me at least, and this is what has worked for me. It's like just being honest, you know, about totally. boundaries and just still, I'm still me. Like I still, I thought I was un- going to be unable to crack jokes around them or, you know, I love to crack jokes. I love to make people laugh. I love to laugh. I thought that that was going to be cut out of the equation because I'm used to being drunk when I'm doing all those things. And I thought I was going to enjoy shows less. I would be less inclined to stage dive or like there are all these things you like think about. And honestly, you know, karaoke is the only thing (laughs) that's gotten harder. Like I still love I actually feel like I spend more time in like up front at the show and in the crowd because when you're drunk and on drugs you want to go talk to people um and so now i just don't talk to anyone just kidding but it's like (laughs) anr has not gotten harder it's actually gotten healthier for me and it's it's been it's made it possible for me to have healthy relationships way more healthy relationships with people because i'm of a sound mind you know um and the people i work with um you know, have always understood that. When I worked at Anti, I, I um, welcomed Andy Schaff onto the roster, one of my favorite musicians of all time. Um, and I'm using this as an example because he's talked about this in interviews, but, um, you know, he loved to have a beer. <laughs> and, uh, and we both did. And we, you know, are, you know, he made amazing records that that was it never hindered his ability to do so but you know we we'd go out a lot and um so when i got sober i was worried about like when i would visit um even after we worked together how our relationship was going to change when we hung out and i vocalized those feelings in some way at some point and like um man nothing's changed i feel like we have a more real a relationship now we no longer work together um i would love to work with him again <laughs> wink <laughs> just kidding wink, wink. Um, <laughs> um but uh yeah actually like we talk about real things now yeah it's like you don't realize when you're using with people um 
uh, you can have a good relationship, but uh, you're sometimes it's like it's going to be more dramatic, emotionally charged. Yeah. You're talking about uh, what you're mad about and what you what you both hate and um, other people, and yeah. uh, that consumed me. That so, sort of stuff when I was using, and now I'm like. We're talking about, you know, what we love and what we're working on and things we've watched, things we've read. The relationship has gotten just, I, I consider that, like, he, he recently stopped drinking too. Um, and, you know, we're, I feel like we're becoming friends now, <laughs> like real friends, you know, you get to know each other. Yeah, similar way. to like when you stop fading hard and your dreams start to get super vivid. I think it's part of the same process where the sort of, interaction you have with people becomes more vivid and and more oh my gosh it's not only that the subject or the things being discussed are more meaningful it's kind of i feel like the approach by both parties or whoever is is more meaningful totally yeah Yeah, it's intentional right Um, intention that's a great word you don't fall into situations which is what fading is is a glue of of circumstance and just (laughs) falling into right yeah Yeah. like i had a reputation of being like a pretty i i mean from what i've heard (laughs) um (laughs) of being like you know, a pretty out there and are like, she's a lot of fun, you know, like, um, I've always been pretty mouthy. That's never changed. Um, <laughs> unfortunately that didn't change when I got sober. I thought <laughs> that it would, and my life would get easier. <laughs> but uh, anyway, like that, you know, I, uh, that, that rep- reputation just, um, kind of happens to you when, when, when you're doing that. And, you know, I go on tour and with people every now and then I'm not, a professional tour manager, but I have definitely claimed to be at points in time just to go on tour or I go to sell a friend's merch or I go just to hang with helping a friend. Is helping. helping is helping. And you know what I always said? I'm the vibe manager. You That's know, people legit. are like, are you selling merch? And I'm like, no, I'm the vibe manager. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it brought you I here mean, to the table, didn't it? Yeah. Like I actually not long ago went on tour with Tom Berlin, a new sign, a, a relatively new signing. Now we've worked together for a couple of years. Wow. Um, but you know, she went on a solo tour with Andy Schaff. My worlds collided. And, uh, you know, I have close relationships with both of those artists. So, and they were both solo, beautiful tour up the West Coast. I was like, yeah, I'll come on tour with you. Um, With Tom Berlin, um, just us two in a car. Um, And um, I was like, I'll sell merch, which is something like back in the day when I was using and stuff, it's like, yeah, I would go on tour. Did did, was I receptive to a responsibility? Fuck no. (laughs) You got what you got, depending on how I felt that night. You know, you'll have a night where like, sorry, I forgot to sell merch, but here is a $200 bar tab. Will that make up for it? You know what I mean? Like I would have to figure it out, patch it together. Uh, things would happen to me. You know, that's not true. Um, you know, I'd piss people off. I, you, you, uh, incredibly, I always maintained um, good relationships with the bands because it is easy to make up for it when you have a company credit card. But, um, but (laughs) it's like now it's like, so I go on tour Tomberlin and I'm at the table selling merch, enjoying it, talking to fans. Um, I realize I'm pretty good at selling merch because I talk a lot. 
And so not enough to where I'm keeping one person at the table very long. Um, But I like just, you need an engaging person behind the merch table. You'll make like five times more. Like don't bring your very quiet friend on tour to sell merch because that will have an impact. You're speaking the (laughs) Um, truth. So I learned that, you know, and um, this was not long ago. So like, so, um, yeah, I mean, everything's changed with my job and uh, I've become more responsible and clear um, and intentional with my relationships and how I want to help and how I'm able to help, you know, like I wish more A&R people would go on tour with their artists or help out in like physical ways, you know, like yeah. be part of it in this very like ground level way. I think that's part of your strength, though, because maybe it comes from you personally and your own experiences and your how you were raised, but you fit into something that I feel like is a phenomenon mm-hmm. around New Orleans, which is that I have never had so many meaningful conversations with complete strangers than I have <laughs> in New Orleans. And I'm not talking about mm-hmm. sitting down at the bar next to, I literally mean- Oh, anywhere. In the farmer's market. The last time I was there, I was in Ferdy's getting a sandwich after the show. I walked over there. The bus wasn't leaving. House of Blues. We played House of Blues. Of course. So I walked over to Ferdy's and in walks this girl with a viola. I know it's a viola because it's larger than a (laughs) violin case. And we're waiting for our sandwiches. And I'm like, it's a viola, right? You play the viola? She's like, yeah, but I also play trombone in this bluegrass band and do all. And we just start talking about music. And we had this totally in-depth, like, 10-minute conversation. While, and I was just like, that's happened multiple times every time I'm in that city. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's conversation is where, like, I don't know where people are most comfortable in New Orleans. Like, you know, you hear this thing about how, and I love New York. And I love New York people. They're special in their own ways. Yeah, that, agreed. That, that New Orleans doesn't quite have you know like everyone's uh, but i always hear this thing that like new york people like they just like it's community they got each other's backs and i'm like you know like i know it on such a like primitive level i mean um it's why you're right like when i'm um uh i didn't mean to just diss new york but i accidentally did um both places are really great at that new orleans they're so different it's very like it's it's just it's southern hospitality in a state that's very progressive in a in a town that's very progressive not a city of survivors though that are city of survivors who have been through it and had to come back together you know i lived uh, you know, there and through Hurricane Katrina and it that that that, um, you know, uh, historically, uh, New Orleans has been through uh, many tragedies. So many. So many. Stacked. From day one, you know, like things that happened long before I was even a concept um, and, you know, slavery. And there's just such a dark history to New Orleans. Yeah. And um And uh, as part of being the South, you know, um, and I think that it's created 
people have to celebrate there. It's why there are jazz funerals, like grief. Um, we know how to uh, overcome grief with celebration and community. We don't let it deter us and we don't let it isolate us. We come together in the face of it. And, um, you know, I always knew that about New Orleans and its people growing up. But then I experienced it myself during Hurricane Katrina. And, um, you know, I I wasn't physically there when uh, when Katrina hit New Orleans. I had luckily evacuated not very long before it, before it hit, though. Um, so thankfully, I wasn't there, but many people were. And many people died. And my dad was a first responder because um, he works for the city. And, you know, um, you know, he he was there and he, you know, he, uh, part of his job, just even as a first responder was to rally the like local fishermen so that they could like use the boats and like involve the community in search and rescues. And it was just like all hands on deck. And you see it in this very, like I say, primitive, primitive way, like this very, very, um, like in a situation like that, which is so devastating. Um, but then on the other side of it, um, after the dust settled, which took so long, I, in some ways the city, city is still recovering. Yeah. Um, but on the other side of it, that doesn't go away. Um, the same the same community and ability to reach out, ask for help, offer help um, exists in tragedy, but also in celebration. After Katrina, we came back and the first thing that happened were shows like, you know, that's what got the city back together. That in football, people are shocked that I am a football fan. I mean, fuck the NFL, but I'm a Saints fan. People are like, wait, you like football? And I just say, no, I like the Saints. Um, That's fair. <laughs> like the Saints were so instrumental in bringing us back together as a city, you know, that we won the Super Bowl. Like, yeah. I can't describe to you the feeling of being in the city, um, uh, you know, uh, the night of the Super Bowl when, oh, man. you know, I, I didn't grow up watching football. The night of the Super Bowl win in the city after right after Hurricane Katrina or, you know, a, a while after Hurricane Katrina, but the, the you know, still feeling yeah. it the, and the impact of it. Yeah. Um, Oh my God, we were all, we were standing on cars. Like, um, it's what, you know, it's what some people... <laughs> I don't know. It, it 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 was an absolute circus, but yeah. in the best way possible, you know. Um some people would have called it um a bit overboard, but that's our style. I, I just it was such a joyous joyous event. Um I don't remember ever feeling like that. Like not awesome. one other time in my life. Um and that was the New Orleans spirit. That's what I identify. Like a uh, celebration um uh, celebrating with your with your community after surviving. Survival. Um and not you know, I've learned a lot about dealing with my mental illness from uh, by being from New Orleans. You know, like I said, like 
depending on people, leaning on people and letting them lean on you and um, and just like taking interest in people like New Orleanians are just interested in each other. They they are such characters. Everyone has such a some wild and, and crazy stories. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a transient town. So many people who didn't exactly grow up there, but have been there for a long time, have like just uh, also amazing uh, histories, you know, and they ended up in New Orleans because they're such yeah. free spirits who, who identify with the totally. city. But um, I, on panels and stuff, people, this is another question. People are like, you know, how did you um how did you learn about this job and what was like the education process and how did you learn how to do your job and i'm like i don't understand that question really as it relates to my job but i'm pretty sure the only thing that prepared me for this job was growing up in new orleans i i joke sometimes there's an interview somewhere of me saying like being a bartender in New Orleans prepared me more for my job than any industry related thing could ever, you know, like totally. talking to people and um, spending lots of time with them and, um, you know, taking an interest in each other and being like New Orleans is such a supporter of the arts. Um, yeah, that place is the antidote to the American exceptionalism that we're seeing run rampant right now. Yeah. And I didn't realize it until I saw all this American exceptionalism through whole Trumpism and COVID idiots and stuff. And then I think about what, as an outsider, I value about visiting that place that I didn't even grow up in, that I've never lived in, but I've only spent over the past 20 years, days here, two days, three days, one day here. And I get that. It's exactly how you said it is the first thing I ever experienced. My first time there at 19 years old playing at the New Orleans State Theater, oh, yeah. which for anybody who hasn't wow. been there or who hasn't doesn't know, this was outside of the French Quarter. It was in a part of town that most, for me, uh, from coming from a Northern California suburbia, I was like, whoa, oh, yeah. these are scary dudes hanging out. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, raves and stuff would happen there, you know? Yeah. And then, like, but there was that like bar cafe that oh, all yeah. the older like dudes would be hanging out at. Yeah. And, you know, we're afraid of them loading our gear. Oh, and by yeah. the end of the night, we're chatting with them and uh -huh. everybody's cool. They're like, what do you guys, you guys are obviously from out of town. Like, what are you doing here? Like, we're, we just played a show and all this stuff. And <laughs> oh, R.A.P. State Palace Theater. Yeah. Um, It's a badge. of You played there, you said? Twice. Twice. Wow. It's a badge of honor to have played there. It was it called... Uh, it wasn't called New Orleans or what was it technically? I think called? it's had a different name. I know it as State Palace Theater. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I didn't I didn't It I has had a name. different name okay. before my time. Um I, I guess but you know, it was like that terrible load in up this gigantic oh, yeah. set of stairs. Yeah. This was upstairs. But uh the reason I was even bringing that up is because that from the very first time I was there, yeah. I experienced that, like you said, Everybody in New Orleans in is interested in each other and is interested in the people that they obviously are not from there coming through. Right. right. Like those guys you reference might not have even been going to that fucking show. They were just like hanging outside of somewhere. and No, they and definitely were not going to the show. They weren't going to the show, but yeah. they were equally as interested in why yeah. you guys were there. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, also because if they were from around there, um, once again, artists are like, uh, that's like, that's like the, you know, that's the, the coolest thing you can be to someone in New Orleans. And what I think the coolest thing or the coolest upbringing or origin that you can have being a A&R person at a respectable label is to have the kind of origins that you do. Coming from a place that's so music centric, that is so interested in 
the human story. And a lot of industry people tout this as a way of legitimizing themselves retrospectively because they know that's what they want in their work, but they don't have it. But you really do. And I would like to bring attention to the fact that you are a music fan, but you're also trying to like find an authentic story, but create an authentic story yeah. through the label work with the artist. Of course. And it just all transitions so perfectly with you having the origins that you do in New Orleans. And oh, yeah, we like to tell scene. stories. That oh, too. my gosh. Like half of my interest in the bands I work with only part of it is music. Like the other part of it is who they are as people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They're all such fascinating people. Right. I could talk about these people forever. You know, these are people, this is why I get really close um, to, to a lot of my artists is that like, I'm just interested in their minds, period. <laughs> like I, you know, for example, uh, I, I can say this because it's not going to air for a minute. Like uh, this this coming Wednesday, I'll be announcing the signing of, of, I signed my favorite band and I'm very excited about it. They're called Spirit of the Beehive. And um, I, anyone who knows me knows that I've been like a massive fan of this band for a long time. And, you know, I heard about this, this band from my friends and, um, and got to know their music. And through the music, I was like, what kind of brain did this come from? Right. I want to know more about this brain. Right. Like I, what the fuck? Like this had to have come from a very interesting person or a very, you know, a very interesting group of people. I uh, love to report that this band operates as like an organism, like a real band. So like all three of them are, are incredibly uh, fascinating. And I love all three of their brains, but I just like, I heard the music and I was like, I want to like know where this came from and what inspired this to be made because like, wow, it is just so, um, you know what I'm saying? Like through yeah. the music, you just know there's more. And so meeting them and getting to know them, we're announcing this Wednesday, but I think like I would have to look at, at dates, but I think I've been talking to this band now for a couple of years. Oh, cool. Um, so it's taken a long time. Uh -huh. um, and, um, you know, both them and I have our reservations about the industry. You know, we talked about this straight up, you know, yeah. like when I first met them, they had just you know, they were on Tiny Engines and that label, we all, I think a lot of us, at least, I don't know if everyone listening to this does know, but that label um, is, I don't even know, maybe they're still uh, working their catalog, but they're not in current operation anymore. Um, they... I don't really know the details. I was bummed about it because a lot of artists that I'm friends with um, uh, were on that label and are now not um, and in the process of trying to get their masters back. Uh. Um, and I have like talked to lots of them about it and tried to help where I can. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to another band. Actually, I signed two bands, two pretty uh, beginning, one beginning band. Spirit's been around for a minute and, um, you know, they have been doing the work. But I'm actually going to be working with two bands that have come from Tiny Engines. Cool. And, um, you know, they were it was they were kind of burned, like some shit went down with that label. And they I have no reservations saying this. It's just the truth. There were just, there might have been good intentions, but um, they just, 
you know, there's a lot on their plate and they didn't account to the artists. Right. And, um, this is all, you know, straight from the horse's mouth. So, um, it's just facts. Um, and they, yeah. (laughs) And they, um, you know, they fucked up and, um, it sucks because what happens in that situation is you have these artists who were promised something. They were promised a commitment. They were promised, um, by these people, uh, you know, a career, they were promised that their stories would be told. And then it came to a screeching halt and, um, uh, and there, and without very much consolation, what's even worse is like, now they're in the position of, of trying to get masters back, you know, from perpetuity deals. And this oh. is something I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the case in that scenario. Um, but if I'm wrong about that, yourself, I'm sorry. Making an artist sign a perpetuity I mean, deal. okay, let's just say it right now. These the, perpetuity deals should not exist. They should not exist I ever. Just, I was just on the phone with another artist who I don't even work with who um, didn't realize that they signed a perpetuity deal. That's so fucked. And so I, you know, I'm, I, um, I'm trying to help them out, but there's very little you can do at that point, as you know, and, um, pretty legally binding. Yeah. It's so fucked up. It's so fucked. If you're listening to this and you're looking for a label and, uh, I don't care who it is and how much you love their label, please do not sign a perpetuity deal. That means that that label, um, perpetuity means forever. So that means that they own your (laughs) forever. They own, um, your masters forever. And there are lots of weird like details to that. Like, you know, maybe there's a point where that you're, for example, I hear this sometimes like, yeah, uh, I'm in a perpetuity deal, but at least like after we, recoupment or after this seven-year license after the seven-year term then it reverts to like an 80 20 instead of a 50 50 so I, I feel okay about that and I'm like you know that's still fucked up right like I don't think that they should be collecting yeah. even that further I don't totally. think they should even be collecting that 20 percent I know I hear you your uh split gets more favorable after a certain amount of time I just believe in like license terms, like I believe in like a timestamp and you know, that can, depending on how much you're investing in a band, um, I think that it's fine to ask for a longer term from a band if you have given them some money and like, I believe in in playing it fair on both ends, you know, Um, but I do not. I cannot believe there are still perpetuity deals. And you know what? I know this. There are still perpetuity deals happening on the independent side. You know, um, people like to say that they don't happen on the independent side anymore, but that's not true. Um, some people just aren't saying that because no one wants to like, no one wants to, to tell on anybody, but, um, I mean, it's not something we should hide because it's just objectively unfair. And so we should all be able to agree on that and just get past it. And uh, I actually know of some very DIY labels who do perpetuity. Well, I think that with so many labels and artists relying on syncs, especially, which is licensing and Mm -hmm. having the music used for different media outlets that encourages people to, like do those perpetuity deals because you're like, it doesn't matter whether the song's 10 or 20 years old. If Honda wants to use it for a commercial bang, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
I mean, so. it's intentional and it's, it's, it, it's, uh, the only word I have for it is predatory. I don't care what the details are. I agree. If the deal is perpetuity, it's nice that it's so simple. If the deal is in perpetuity, it is predatory. It is unethical. <laughs> it is unethical. It's unethical. And yeah. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's based on an antiquated idea of how the business should work. And that antiquated idea was built in the interest of business people, industry, labels, um, just like any other. You might as yeah. well be selling car insurance. You know, you might as it's, well work at Amazon. It's <laughs> literally a loan shark loaning yeah. you a thousand bucks and then requiring you to pay back two thousand bucks by next Thursday. And if you can't, it goes to four thousand to eight thousand yeah. to sixteen. Yeah. That's what these perpetuity yes. deals are. And mm -hmm. I also think that's a lot of there's examples where this isn't the case. But a lot of 360 deals have also been that, which is they promise you to handle all this stuff in-house, yeah. but really it's just locking you into no, the bureaucracy of in-house. God, I don't believe and, in those at all. Yeah, oh and, my God, fuck any of that. Yeah. You want the chance to be able to reassess. Um, uh, you know, like in some ways, like maybe you want to stay with the label, but th this is the thing. Like Saddle Creek has worked records. Like master rights in some cases have not, the artists have not asked for them back. We just re-sign the deal because they like the job we're doing. Legit. Um, and that, that that's the thing. Like, it's not wrong to want to be with a label for a very long time. No. Whatever, I get that. But only if it's working, right? Like, don't trap yourself. Like, right. give yourself the opportunity in seven years. Um, and if you're successful, the label will want to re-sign right. the, um, the deal at that point, which will work differently if you're not an active artist. You know, it's, it's more of a catalog situation. But um, they'll want to keep their catalog with you if you're doing a good job. Exactly. And so it, give, it incentivizes me to do a good job. And when that in, and uh, when that in, uh, incentive isn't there, for example, when you do when you have locked an artist in a perpetuity deal, you are no longer incentivized to do a great job for them. Precisely. <laughs> and so uh, I want I just want to remind all musicians that like they're the boss. Like they are the gatekeepers. They are the bosses. Like without them, none of it could exist. So demanding you know, a term um, with a time on it um, so that you do have the ability to reassess um, is is the only thing that's right, I think. The only thing you should be asking for, and it's hard to say this sometimes because I understand some people are in this situation where they don't have another choice. They have one label who's interested in them and uh, it is a perpetuity deal, but that's all they have. I do not blame artists for signing these deals when that's the only option they've been presented. I, I that, that, fault is not theirs. Sometimes artists are backed into a corner and they might even have the knowledge I'm speaking of. I don't want to insult their t intelligence. Sometimes they're forced to make that decision and that's what's fucked up. I blame the people who have created that structure that is socially acceptable, which seems so, you know, immoral and unethical. Like we should all be able to agree with that. Um, but, you know, the it was built by people who who don't always have the the artist interest in, at mind yeah quite the opposite their own interest exactly and you heard it very concisely and very well put by an expert herself <laughs> somebody with their heart and mind in the right place uh working on the other side of 
what a lot of us working musicians need, which is people in that label position. There's the fact is, is that all of us can all talk about what we want, but musicians like myself, all of us have made that conscious decision to take it from the garage, to try and take it to a higher level where we can make a living off of it and do all that. So I really appreciate uh, Amber's very concise and clear explanation on that. And um, And I'm going to make space for those people as long as I'm in it. I always have had thoughts when things have gotten hard and it's hard to be who I am in A&R because, um, you know, you get a lot of pushback from, um, people, but, uh, I recently had a coming to where I was like, Oh, absolutely not. Now that I have the autonomy and I have, I'm supported by a great company and a great boss, like, man, I can actually really go out there and set, help set a new precedent. And there are other younger A&Rs right alongside me and industry people who are doing the same shit and forging a new path. I do feel it changing. The old guard feels threatened. You know, I have been in some arguments with them. I have thrown a water bottle at the wall in complete frustration of the um the system i was a part of um and and the inability to change it at that time but i have a lot more strength now because i have the support i need and so you know i just like i feel more resolute about this job than ever and even more so now that i'm sober i'm like oh whoa i can really get some shit done now like i i'm even more inspired these days because like there is space and the old guard is dying out Thank God. <laughs> and yeah. I will be there to uh, fight them on all of this stuff for as long as I'm in the industry. They'll have to take me out, you know? <laughs> I love that you said that. I think that's a perfect way to close this because uh, that's just a wonderful statement. And all of us musicians are better off with someone like you in this universe. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming down here and taking the time to talk. Yeah, of course. It was such a pleasure. This has been really fun. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Thanks, Steve. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? <laughs> How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-d.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.